Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. All right. Well, first of all, I'm very, very excited to have this event here tonight. This is a very timely book and a very timely conversation and a very fun opportunity to talk about the future of cities and the future of buildings at a time that we're, a lot of us are doing a lot of that. The first thing I want to do is introduce Thomas and welcome him. So for those of you who are going to get his book tonight, it is the quickest 460 pages you will ever read, but it's incredibly fun. And so I'm really excited to have him here and I'm really excited to have him in this building. His book is about why we need spaces that are not boring. And the space you're in today is kind of a funny place. This building was built by Swedish craftsmen that moved to San Francisco after the earthquake to build the city because they were the best carpenters in the world. And they built this as a clubhouse for them. And so this room was designed for society meetings, dinners. It wasn't designed to have a rock club in it. It certainly wasn't designed to have a Basque restaurant and all the other things that it did. But this building was adapted over and over again. And so now tonight with these silly thrones and all the fun stuff we have here, it can host things like this. And I think that's part of the charm of this building and part of why buildings that are important are here. So I'm your moderator tonight. I'm Enrique Landa. I'm a developer. I'm the son and the grandson of an architect. So I'm the fallen child. And in my work, we are looking to repurpose two old power plants in San Francisco right on the water. We've been lucky enough that these spaces are compelling and beautiful. And we have this little chimney that you can see there that for the first time, we just got a chance to peek up. And we're thinking about how to adapt these spaces. And there's no man sort of more fun to think about spaces with than this guy. So if we, we do our job one day, it'll look like this. And we'd be pretty excited that it's not a boring place and that certainly he wouldn't call us out as boring. So with that, we're going to let Mr. Heatherwick take us through his book. And I first heard of Thomas for a little building that he did. It was a cafe in England that he built for a friend of mine. And this little place in Little Hampton was just the most fascinating restaurant that I could ever see. And he went on to build some pretty amazing structures. This was at the UK Pavilion 2012, the Cathedral of Seeds. Some of you would have seen him put together a cauldron of lights for the Olympics, where all of these individual parcels came together to form the Olympic torch. He's also built buildings that current up by themselves, which are fantastic. One of my favorite projects of his is an adaptive reuse of a grain silo in Africa, which he turned into a museum and a hotel. Inspiration for a lot of our work. He's built this incredible building for this little company called Google. Wonderful, wonderful place. And then just about the best public space I've ever been to, which is Little Island in New York. And he transformed the piers where the Titanic survivors came and created a public space that when I was there November a year ago, 200 people were there on a rainy, cold day when it was like 40 degrees. And I'm like, if he can get people to go there, there's got to be something with it. So with that, Mr. Heatherwick. Is this normal for all of you? Is this some occult society? And did anyone bring the baby we were going to sacrifice there? I'm really used to sitting in thrones like this. Is this really normal? And very, very boring, as you can tell. Thank you, everyone, for coming. This is a really amazing space. And we've had lots of conversations together. And he never said they had this incredible wooden hall. That's amazing. Normally, I've got the safe cover of showing projects. And we've worked on all sorts of things over the last 29 years of the studio's history. And in a way, it's much more easy to talk about a project, explain it, show it, and tell the story of it. But we realized that how actually uninfluential projects are. In the studio, we finish about four projects a year, and that's a lot of work, and it sounds like a lot. But many years ago, when I was 13, my dad took me to a new city being built in the UK, and it was at the very early stages and they had an exhibition of houses of the future and there was pyramid house that was being built that captured the sun's heat and there was another building with these curved walls so instead of drawings or models they built full-size houses 
that were permanently going to be part of a city called Milton Keynes, if any of you have heard of it. And then about 30 years later, my studio became called the lead artist for Milton Keynes. And I went back to it and then thought, oh, where, where's that pyramid house? We went and we drove and we found it. And there this lonely little pyramid house was and machine gun next to it was just all these other houses just going <laughs> pyramid house. <laughs> totally just thought and just carried on as normal. It, it had influenced nothing. And it really hit me also that when you go to place and you see extra efforts being paid to something, everything around just makes excuses and thinks, well, oh, they must have had more budget or, oh, well, they had a different planner or, oh, it was a different time or, oh, well, now we're in crisis. And we all make excuses to not try. So what really hit us in the studio is that if we go for maybe another 25 years, hopefully if we don't get run over by my own bus, we will do 100 projects, which is not very much. And if we stood on the roof of this building, you'll see 100 projects. And that doesn't actually change the world around us. And so there was the realization, actually, there's a bigger issue and a bigger conversation. And so the book is an effort, really, to try and trigger a bigger national conversation somehow and internationally. By the way, this talk has gone wrong already because I'm rambling about things, but they're important things to say. And Enrique has been told to stop me by my own team in London, but I'm going to just try and blank him from the corner of my eye. But the other very influential thing was that years ago, I was interested in what motivates us is in the studio most is where you think you can make the most difference. And so... The reason we don't design rich people's houses is because they're already pretty amazing and hardly anyone sees them. And who cares? No, we sort of care. We're interested really in problems. And we got to meet the chief medical officer of Great Britain, someone called Dame Sally Davis, and got to talk to her about the worst environments you ever come into contact with, which tend to be hospitals, care homes, clinics, and you think, what is society saying to itself in these spaces? And talking to her, I'd imagine there was someone who could wave a magic wand. And she said, you do realize no one's in charge. And I remember thinking, really? And she said, yeah, there's all the different health trusts and they're all busy. And the managers of all those health trusts are engrossed in their issues. And the only way to make real change is if you can create patient pull. And I remember thinking, what's patient pull? And she explained that if somebody sees, say, a cancer care center that's being built in Dundee, and then there's a new one going to be built in Leeds, and the patients say to the, the clinical staff or the managers, yeah, but have you seen that cancer care center? It's really good. Why don't you do something like that? That that would really would affect things. And that is what she meant by patient pull. But what she really meant was that leaders don't lead. An okay leader listens and hears what people are saying. And the problem we've had in the world of buildings is that nobody, everyone feels so disempowered. They think, well, I'm not an architect. I'm not a builder. I'm not a developer. I'm not a mayor. I'm not a city planner. I can't change anything. And it perpetuates. But Underneath it all, I feel we are living through a global catastrophe in terms of the buildings around us. I'll try and talk a bit more about that. As we've been engulfed increasingly in characterless, soulless places, and we know now that cities, we, half the world's population lives in cities. And by 2050, two thirds of all of us will live in cities. So we need to build millions and millions more homes, hospitals, schools, universities. And how are we going to do that? So the key thing in this book, the very first thing, it's not written for my dog or um, my daughter or anything like that. The book is for, I don't have a dog, it's for the passers-by. And it feels like we've neglected 
us all as passers-by. And I'll just explain why. And this, in a way, is a critical diagram. And in the world of building design, and I don't know how many of you are in that world, so much time is spent thinking about daylight, flow, and all the complicated issues of trying to build a building at all. There's been a sort of devaluation of the outside of buildings, I believe, and I feel that's quite evidenced. So a lot of people are thinking about the people inside, but there's a thousand times more people outside than there are inside. And in the world of building design, there are, the way it's analyzed, it tends to always be about the users inside the buildings and nobody measures. So we've got an industry that is in the top three industries on the planet. And think of other industries like the finance industry, how much it measures the effectiveness of $1. And then you've got an industry in the top three that doesn't measure virtually at all the experience of the greatest experiences of that industry. It's not measured. And you know, when they say you can't change what you can't measure, we've got this funny thing. We haven't been measuring this thing. So let's just take a little tour around the world. Greece, Argentina, Germany. Who would be sad if this building is demolished? Why did a city say yes to so many of these? And Italy's the right place for this one. Would you go on a date outside these buildings? Would the person who designed these buildings want to live in them? And if you ask children anywhere to say, draw me your dream city, how many children would draw that? Let's go into what's going on. And I think there's a whole lot of factors. The things that go together to make this absence of engagingness that our brains need in the world around us, the factors are too flat, too plain, too straight, too shiny. And by the way, shiny kills between a hundred million and a billion birds every year. Too monotonous, too anonymous. Who's in that building? What does that tell you of them? Serious. Why do buildings need to be so serious? When we then say, well, actually, flatness can be charming sometimes. Plainness can be really elegant. Sometimes straight lines are exciting and sometimes serious is absolutely appropriate for the right kind of building. Or monotony, it can be entrancing. So in a way, what we're talking about is it's a bit like if somebody's shooting up heroin, snorting cocaine, drinking alcohol too much and snorting glue. I'm trying to think of all these things I should have done. Um, but uh, it actually starts to add up to harmful boring. So the point is that it isn't just, I'm not telling a story about niceness and I'm not talking about beauty or ugliness. Our brains are wired that we process every second about 11 million visual bits of information. And when you don't have that information, when buildings are, are starved of three-dimensionality, texture, detail, our minds are being starved. And that's what's really interesting as we researched and started to speak to different neuroscientists. We're at this really early stage of the actual science, even though it's an industry that proudly says it's a combination of art and science. I feel it's neither properly scientific, nor actually being that artistic either. But one of the stories that gets said is, oh, well, the public, they just want to go back to the past. That's their problem. But it's actually not true. When you survey in the UK, when you survey the population about what buildings they like, in the UK, two out of 10 are new buildings. Globally, when you look at the most searched on Google buildings, seven out of the 10 are new buildings. So it's not true that the public 
only like old things. I just believe the public don't like boring things. And interestingly, even a caddis fly doesn't make a boring home for itself. In nature, throughout history, animals have made their homes that are not devoid of detail and engagingness. And this is not just a question of money. If we look back over 2,000 years, 1,000 years, 500 years, whether it's a fisherman's hut where the roof is made from seaweed, whether it was people's houses or buildings where the timber structure protruded so that you could climb the building to repair it. We didn't make boring buildings until this strange thing happened about a century ago. And when we speaking to neuroscientists, this is this early stage. And there's uh, one preeminent neuroscientist called Colin Ellard based in Canada has done a, a lot of research into this and is one of the pioneers looking at what is the real impact of these buildings. And for example, this is one study that he did. And he was in New York and got big groups of people. And there's one thing which is what someone's mind is telling you, what they say they think. But we're beginning to now have technologies to be able to look at what your body is saying, not just what your brain is saying. And so all the people who were tested had sensors sensing their their pulses and basically sensing when their level of, I think it's called autonomic arousal. But don't start thinking the wrong thing there. And what they found was, so on West Houston Street, this new building, it's actually a Whole Foods building, but which was just plain, flat, monotonous. And then the buildings here nearby that had more detail it wasn't just that people preferred the buildings at the bottom. Their bodies started going into stress when around the buildings above. It's really interesting to be at the beginning of what I hope will be a science of starting to be really interested in what people think. In the UK, some leaders in the main construction industry, they got together to debate there was a dinner and they voted at the end of the dinner. And the subject of their dinner was, do the opinions of the public matter? And so they debated it, they had dinner and they then voted and they voted that the opinions of the public don't matter. And so we've got this astonishing, bizarre arrogance of a, a mindset of people who are really well-intentioned but have got into a mindset that believes the public are, are ignorant. It's a funny one because I've never met anyone who hasn't lived their entire life in buildings. So actually everybody is an expert on buildings. They may not be articulate about buildings, but they know about them. So the, the evidence is showing our brains do actually need variety because of our speed of visual processing. We actually need something changing and different as we walk through public spaces. Every five seconds, our brains need to be finding something in order to feel contented. And so environments where you don't have that and increasingly building projects are larger and larger. So that challenges even more the, the sense of repetition of one thing. But our brains actually respond to diversity and difference. But where this takes a very sinister twist, really, is construction's dirty secret. And in the US, you demolish a billion square foot of buildings every year to replace them with another billion square foot of buildings, no necessarily less uninteresting. And in the UK, we demolish 50,000 buildings every year, and the average age of a commercial building is 40 years. So this is an issue really about a construction industry can't tell you what's good because if I tell you what I do is good, my challenge is how can your children be the ones who will say, no, don't knock it down. 
why don't we repair it and adjust it? So in 40 years, who's going to stand up for it? So we've had this demolition fervor going on in Seoul, in Korea. The average age of a commercial building is about 30 years. And for a number of years in Japan, the average age of commercial buildings was only 20 years. So when you think of, as a society, we're getting more tuned into not tolerating things like fast fashion or questioning it. But we are quietly having fast architecture happening around us instead of having, if we think of garments, a good quality garment that you would want to repair and adjust and adapt over years. How can we be making buildings that we do that to and don't just demolish and start again? And when we look at the, the data on that, and so we look at how it takes, um, sorry, I'm going to do kilos rather than pounds, but a Big Mac takes four kilos of carbon to make itself. And it's 70 kilos to make an iPhone. And it's 4.6 tons to make a car. To stick a rocket in space is 250 tons. To build a tower in the UK, and you know British towers are not so splendidly tall, takes the equivalent of 23 million Big Macs. So if that's going to live for 40 years and then be demolished, it's insane the carbon involved in that. If the creators of it didn't care enough about what society would feel, not even for their own vanity, which is weird. You'd think you'd want people to like what you design, but let's put that aside. And in reality, we've had an industry that wins awards from itself. It's another building designer who gives an award to the other. So every building's award-winning, you might have noticed these days. But actually, how do you really get interested in what we all think and put yourself in the shoes. You can't please everybody, but we've had a time where we are thinking about emotional intelligence. We talk about EQ, but we've had an, a building industry that isn't actually being empathic. It believes the public are a bit stupid. If only they'd studied for seven years in architecture too, it would all be all right. So this bottom line, these are all double pages from the book. So the bottom one with 23 million Big Macs, if you have the real book, it would carry on, that bar would carry on for another 30 foot longer than your book. And of course, this didn't happen for no reason. Industrialization was happening. We were having intense urbanization a century ago, and there was squalor and slums and it must have felt a time where society needed massive change. And then there was war. And I think there was just a hunger for society to just make a big leap forward and make progress and move away from a past. And so within that, there were also new discoveries about our minds and insights from people like Sigmund Freud. And it must have felt a very exciting time to think in different ways. And that led to the modernist movement. We were thinking in new ways about the mind. We were thinking in new ways about music, about sculpture, about painting, about dance, about poetry. And so it washed through all the humanities and through the arts. It was really exciting and it challenged sentimentality and it challenged emotionality and moved to, in many ways, saying, well, let's look from the brain point of view. And if we think of head, hand and heart, certainly in many ways, the arts move to the head and away to some extent from the hand and craft and inadvertently away from the heart too, I believe. And so the thing that was different though, is that if you see a painting that challenges your brain and doesn't just resort to in a way, conventional things that might make you feel nice and good and comfortable. And you move away from sculpture that has naked maidens with buckets of milk or whatever they have to things that are saying, well, what's going on in this woman's brain? And can we manifest the mind and not just the body? The difference was that if you go to a concert of atonal music, that's amazing and inspires your brain that people could even 
think to turn music on its head, you can walk out the door of the concert hall. You can take the headphones off and put them down. And if you're in a gallery with a painting that is challenging what an idea that might have made you comfortable or you perceive as beautiful, you can walk out of that gallery or you don't have to buy the painting or whatever it is in that. But when this, this trend in the arts hit the world of buildings, it's a bit different because you can't walk away from buildings. They're the walls of our lives. They're the backdrop of society. And we have most of the experiences are powerless in their creation and what they are. So if you're not actually really interested in the biggest experiences, we've got a problem. And this problem started to get very cemented by very amazing statements like these. It's so, in a way, inspiring to read things like, less is more, form follows function, ornaments is a crime. And it must have felt quite liberating. And that must have been exciting in all the different sides of the arts. But when you apply that to buildings, it's a bit different. There's a lot of, uh, sort of paradoxes in here, like the the form follows function is attributed to an architect called Louis Sullivan who said that. But I believe he understood that emotion was a function. But many of the people who adopted this statement didn't. But his own architecture actually has ornaments and detail and focus and not just two-dimensional flatness. So this sort of unholy trinity of these statements got lodged and stuck in an industry and is still there now and very well embedded and hard to shift. And one of the biggest adopters and biggest proponents is the biggest paradox of it all. A man called Le Corbusier, who many of you may know, was in the book, we describe him as the god of boring. But he's a paradox because he also made some of the best buildings ever in history, ever. But he was a very powerful writer and his writings, he advocated for getting rid of all ornaments, getting rid of streets and getting rid of cafes on streets because they're the fungus that blocks up the streets. And curved streets are the pack donkey's way and that skylines should just be a straight line because skylines with spires and differing varied building heights are a jagged tumultuous gash on the skyline and so this is what he wanted to do he wanted to destroy all the old towns of every city and this was his proposal for Paris this was what he wanted to knock down the Marais he wanted to knock down every old town that's Notre Dame there so you can sort of judge for yourself whether you think that was a good idea a paradox because he did one of the best buildings I've ever seen, which is a chapel in a place called Ronchamp in France. Amazing. But he advocated mass boredom very successfully. And a number of others around and alongside him. And it's just stuck. And I don't play golf, but you know when people, apparently I don't watch golf either, so it might not work. But you know when people get into a bunker and they're just stuck with the ball, trying to hit the ball out of the bunker. That's what's happened because we had the toxic combination that it was cheaper. It's the perfect killer mix. How do you ever get out of that bunker? And that bunker has led to really illogical ideas about what works well for us. And tower buildings can be really good for single people, early young couples. But once you get children living on the seventh floor you've got huge problems and that's why this little boy who you can't see behind the throne is saying why did you do this to these men because how do you let your child play if you're on the seventh floor and you can't how do you just keep a corner of your eye of, of children playing it just doesn't work and the social problems of things like this have really embedded in there's nothing wrong with towers but we need a mix. It isn't just one thing. And this sort of quite large advocacy of one thingness is the problem. It's not square buildings that are a problem. 
It's if you only build square buildings and only do them in certain ways. And this financial side is really fascinating in how that has stuck so strongly. And there's a researcher in the US called Michael Benedict. And because one of the stories that always gets told is that, oh, well, it was cheap to make buildings in the past and now it's really expensive. And he researched and found it was really expensive to build buildings in the past. Yes, labor was cheaper. We didn't have roads, cranes, lorries, but society thought it mattered. And society now puts, decides it wants to spend money on other things, but actually it's cheap to build relative to the buildings that many of us may regard as, as quite human from the past. So this thing about national conversation is quite important. And in the UK, and there was a, a chef called Jamie Oliver, who made a national conversation happen because we were brought up with school lunches and they were always terrible. Everyone knew school lunches are pretty bad. By the way, I thought they were good because my mum was a terrible cook. But everyone, I'm talking on behalf of everyone, everyone thought they were bad. And the nutritional value was really low, epitomized by these things called turkey twizzlers. You must have an, a US equivalent of the turkey twizzler. But he just shone a light on the nutritional value of what generation after generation of us had all accepted. And by shining a light and starting a national conversation, change happened. And Turkey Twizzlers got banned. And dinner ladies and school teachers just sort of thought a bit more about what was coming together. And lunches got better. And so we need some equivalent of national conversation. There is a national conversation about sugar, how much sugar we have in our diet. There is a national conversation about flying, about whether we should fly and the carbon involved in that. But just to be clear, the construction industry as a whole is just under 40% of all greenhouse gas emissions. The aviation industry is just over 2%. And just the construction bit is five times aviation. And we talk about aviation, but we're not talking about the buildings around us. But society is talking about mental health. And amazingly, finally, even Prince Harry started talking about mental health. But that's another thing, maybe didn't just talk about it. That's starting to wash through society and footballers are starting to talk and celebrities are talking about mental health. And in the workplace, we're starting to really go deeper in our understanding of the diversity of all of us with each other and how our minds work and how we think and feel. And we need the same thing to happen in the world of buildings. And we've had something called the green premium that's quite well known in the world of architecture and construction which is that no main company can go to its board and say, we're moving into a new workspace and that workspace not be really sustainable in terms of its credentials from environmental performance. This book is proposing that we extend that just a little bit because we know that does cost a little bit more to have the green premium, but surely it's not actually sustainable because I've been to so many conferences and stood there while someone presents an amazing sustainable building with all its high performance. And you're just looking at it thinking, I'd want to knock that down tomorrow. <laughs> so it's not sustainable unless somebody's going to fight for it in 40 years and care about it. So we have to understand a bit more about what makes us tick and relate that back and stop thinking that the public are ignorant. So we need a human premium, and that's become normal language to think about. And so the book proposes something called the humanized rule, that a building should be able to hold your attention for the time it takes to go past it. It's not sounding very scientific, is it? But it's just a simple thing, really, is that for us all as passers-by, with those 11 million points of information our brains pick out every second, what do we need to not starve our brains? And it's, it's well known that people heal quicker in environments that have nature and the complexity of that. 
and that you're less likely to suffer crime and antisocial behavior and less stress. So surely this really matters. And at the heart of it is, I believe, is understanding that emotion is a function. And to stop saying that, because for years in our studio's work, we've had people, fellow professionals who'll say, oh, I do functional things. And you know what you do, you know, you do art stuff, don't you? And you're there thinking, we've never studied arts. I've never studied arts. We're interested in function. And it, the act of really thinking through to write this book just made it clearer than ever that it's not functional unless it engages people and emotion is surely a function. And so in a way it's a provocation is saying, can we make not 40 year buildings or 30 year buildings? How do we have the mindset of thousand year buildings? I know it maybe seems a bit ridiculous and this is a terrible example because it's a palace, but this building in London is coming up for its thousandth birthday and it's been a zoo, it's been a prison, it's been an art installation venue, it's been a good place for having your, being beheaded and various other things like that. But the point is, it's taken on all these different lives. How do we make the buildings that we do now, people are starting to use the expression long life, loose fit. How do we make buildings just loose enough that you could change that? Maybe someone could live there or work there, or maybe it could be adapted in this way or that way, but not make something flexible so that it's actually bland and characterless. Actually, we're more inspired to adjust and adapt things when they do have a character. And when you go to like a little old town in Poland and there's a McDonald's built into a castle wall, you're like, whoa, surely that's so wrong for McDonald's. But then you're sort of like, yeah, they had to adapt and they did. And actually that's arguably the best McDonald's. I'm not a McDonald's fan, by the way. Actually, I am. McFlurries are good. Um, I believe you need to look at buildings. Too often, we say in the UK, if you're talking about buildings, people start saying, do you like the shard or the gherkin or the walkie-talkie? And actually, all the conversation is about city distance. I think it's really important we look at buildings from three different distances. There is the city distance and how something fits in to the rest of a town or city. But then there's the street distance and how your emotions are when you're maybe 100 foot, 120 foot away from a building. But then arguably the, the place where your most emotion is at door distance, when you're just almost within touching distance, to affect that distance is not expensive. That's only the bottom two floors of buildings. But that's where you can feel when something's loveless and virtually every new building is pretty loveless at that distance. Even the famous ones that are fabulous from city distance, maybe. What about door distance? Where are you going to spend your money? Maybe it's better to prioritize door distance rather than city distance. So I've just got two examples before I end. This is a, a hotel in Singapore called Park Royal on Pickering. Three s simple glass boxes and between them are these gardens. So it's interesting at city distance. Then when you get to street distance, you notice that all the plants are hanging over the edges and there's some interesting layers and you can't quite work out what they are. But then when you get to door distance, and this is the distance for any pedestrian just walking past, it's not expensive paving, but it's just got a pattern in it. It's got slight differences in color. There's water going along the edge. And then there's these panels that curve unexpectedly going along. It holds your interest and you can feel that there's something wholehearted about it. It's being a giver to the passerby. Yes, you can go inside it and stay there or whatever, but even if you're not, it's giving you something. But this doesn't just have to be luxury hotels. So this is a social housing project in North London in a place called Finchley. And, and I was just going past one day and had to just go back, especially and get off the bus to go back and see. So this just had something engaging about it from city distance, how it related to a very busy, noisy road. And then when you got to street distance, it was curving round, as Corbusier would say, eh, pack donkey's way. But it had a curve going round and you could tell it was working because the children were already out and playing and you could see that they felt safe there. 
but then at the door distance. So this is the cheapest form of housing that we can build in the UK. And they'd made the effort to put unexpected patches and panels within the brick. It wasn't faking an old building. They hadn't sort of sprayed yogurt on it to pretend it had moss that was 300 years old or anything. But they got panels set in and bricks turning and twisting in different directions. A bit like there used to be something called the window tax in the UK, where they taxed you depending on how many windows you had. So people block their windows to pay less tax. But then even the stairs up to the different flats just have an unexpected swing round that you can imagine a child nestling in while their mummy's coming down and then sort of jumping out on them. Or you just feel that there's joy at the door distance and not just at the city distance or the street distance. And that's where you really feel they cared. So the book really is, is not written for the industry. It's deliberately trying to write a book. And I know it sounded like a big insult when you said this is the quickest book you can read. That's the best compliment we could want. You go to bookshops and the architecture sections over there and the best ones within that are the coffee table versions. And there's a page in the book which has all the weird language that gets used. Normally, in the world of building design, it almost celebrates the public not being able to understand what it's saying. Why say window when you could say fenestration? Why say ceiling when you could say soffit? In the UK, sometimes people call it archibollocks. I don't know if you've heard of that. But so there's a good double page if you enjoy that kind of thing in the book. So there's change really needed. And going back to Dame Sally Davis, it will only happen with patient pull. And that's only if there are 100 million conversations and we just start, people start to feel that they're not pushed out from the conversation and that their opinions do matter. And people start to trust their instinct and call out what they feel because we're not wrong. You're not wrong when you feel something. So the last page of the book really is a, the beginning really of what I hope can be a new movement really, because I think it's quite an exciting time. We have technologies now that can see and can be used to help us understand what we all feel and think and move from the idea that the public are ignorant and that it's all just about beauty and beauty subjective and that's all what you just want to go back to the past. We're in a time where I think understanding of the mind could help actually an industry become more scientific and more artistic and liberate many different kinds of creativity which used to exist in the world of buildings and so much space for that now. So. That's my last slide. Thank you. Spooky gob goblet. When you argue against boring, you don't get boring glassware. So, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Heatherwick, can you can see his book takes a bit to read because everything you're in there, you want to Google every image to see what he's talking about. And then you get lost for hours um, looking at specific buildings like that social housing building. It's incredible. But in his book, he has a boring meter. And he starts rating buildings from being boring to being more human. And I have a quibble with Mr. Heatherwick. In the book, he lists La Sagrada Familia. And he puts it in there and he says that a building like La Sagrada Familia is a 9 out of 10, 10 being the least boring and most human, the other way around, the, yeah, the, most, the least boring, most human. And so this building, that, that defines Barcelona, that millions of people, is a 9. So pray tell, Mr. Heatherwick, what is it? I was just trying to make out. Maybe there's, maybe there's something more you could do. <laughs> Leave so room for improvement. So I, didn't want to seem, I didn't want to seem too much of a fanboy for Gaudi. <laughs> and give away the truth. Well, Mr. Heatherwick, I thought that having a San Francisco audience in a city that is very beautiful naturally, I wanted to see what you thought about some of our structures and buildings on your boring meter. So from one to ten, I would like you to grade some of our buildings. And structures. Number one, it's a little bridge built in 1937. Beautiful piece of infrastructure. One to ten. Now, just to be clear, <laughs> I, I don't want... The whole point is that the humanizes isn't that I become a god and king guy sitting in thrones. I'm interested in what everyone else thinks. It felt that there's 
this thing's been happening with buildings that we all know, but nobody's saying, and we all feel it. To me, this is fantastic. You don't actually experience it at door distance. So it'd be a different conversation if you were walking along that every day without the fabulous view. So this doesn't count. <laughs> we'll try again. We have a rather tall building in San Francisco, built after another technology company called the Salesforce Tower. Back to me again. Back to you. <laughs> I'm going to make you go through a couple of these. Again, I would just say the bottom. I just think we spend too much time talking about the tops of buildings and your emotion is at the bottom. But luckily, I don't know the bottom of this building, so I can imagine it's fabulous. But, and I can generalize, typically the door handle, I'm just, not the world's all about door handles, is virtually the same door handle on all new buildings. The glass is the same new glass. A friend of the studio has an architectural reclamation company and she just put a different twist on it because they get bits of old churches and bits of art deco buildings that are being demolished. And she'd love to demolish this building, by the way. She'd love that. But she said the problem with the buildings of the last 80 years is there's nothing to salvage. You just salvage silicon sealant. Do you want to buy some silicon sealant? Big bits of glass, some flat aluminium. And I suddenly realized, yeah, that's... There's something about that that connects. And when we did a project in New York, which called Lantern House with the windows, I had her in the back of my head thinking, how do we make this? We've got to work with the budget they've got, with the materials and procurement, but can we make it have some detail? And when she saw it, she said, when can I reclaim one of the windows? I said, well, I hope in a thousand years, but that's typically the world of permitting buildings is in offices that look down. The models, you look down at the model. Society spends too much time talking about judging this from here. But if you took someone and just stood them at the bottom, what would they feel? Because when you're in the ground, the top doesn't matter. And I think we also, in London, we debate too much. The papers will talk about, it's terrible, all the tall towers. And it's as if, if you took it down by five floors, it would be better. And Hong Kong taught me that there, these chopstick towers, really tall. And you don't worry about how tall the tower is. Just worry about how did it make you feel at the bottom? Did it make the street be more alive? And things like, there are some amazing urbanists like Jane Jacobs and Jan Gale is uh, somebody who's within the industry is sort of known. And he talks about the best streets the more doors you have on the street, the more interesting. I mean, just looking in to a glass lobby, what's an office lobby for? What's it for? Who cares about an office lobby? You just look in and there's an artwork on the wall in the distance and there's like the heads of some women behind a big piece of marble. So often these buildings are takers, not givers at the street. So I'm not really interested in this view, frankly. Let's go to ultimate street level. I wish this was a new thing that was as interesting as that. But that's, that's got loads of diversity, three-dimensionality. But the problem is, by praising it, it sounds like you're saying go back to the past. And I really believe there's this amazing opportunity for designers, for developers to be progressive. Mm -hmm. And before the current king of England uh, became the king, when he was still a prince, you know, he built a new town the last time there was any national conversation about buildings in the UK was 40 years ago when he called out a lot of the modern buildings that were being built and in his way was saying they're inhuman. But he did then say, go back to the past. And the problem is the whole construction industry just laughed him out of the house in a way. He still plowed on and built this town and it's been really successful and people love living there. But I was hoping to have a conversation with him and say, look at the success of that, but could we now try and build a town that isn't necessarily copying the past, but learns a lot of the lessons that are there to be learned. But the queen died and he became a king and they can't do anything anymore. That's confidential, by the way. So modernism... Not that the queen died, the bit that comes in. <laughs> modernism came at 
the end of a period that affected design and changed the way buildings want to be, as you discussed so eloquently. And I agree with you that now we're yearning for something different, that we want more connection. And you've said famously in an era that when people can get a PhD in their bed, and why go to a library? What's changing for us in the way we're thinking about cities? And why is now the time for your humanized moment? What are we yearning for? What change do we want to see? In the past, you had to be in a city to work. And that's why we ended up with the slums and everything, because you had to be near the place of work. And cities were designed just to get you to that place of work and then spit you back to wherever you lived. We then had the digital revolution, hyper-accelerated by COVID. And I think we all thought that the internet was going to be this amazing democratizer and we would all see the world and we would see each other. And we didn't know then that actually those algorithms would divide us and wouldn't bring us together. And that that world of online, which the face-to-face real world would do, could breed hate that physical proximity diffuses in many ways. And so where do you see society? Where do you see your fellow human beings when you can, you can work remotely, you can buy all your clothes remotely. As you say, you can get a PhD lying in bed. And all the rhythms are broken as well. Rhythms where people used to go to the baker or the butcher on a certain day at a certain time when your food's being delivered, when you can work in flexible hours now more than ever, even if you are going into work, going in at nine o'clock or eight o'clock or whatever is busted. Cities now are so precious for seeing each other. And we used to say that a city or a town centre was lively. We'd go, oh, it's really lively there. But what you really meant was there's lots of shopping. And now that shopping is kind of hollowed out to a large extent, it's become clear that that shopping wasn't even really us all. Where were the older people? Where were the children? All the people who couldn't afford that, they weren't there. And so... The physical world now, I'm very passionate about cities and towns because our humanity is actually being with each other and seeing each other. And to really think of buildings now as the backdrop of all of our lives, our public rooms. And so I know the world's gone crazy about art and the values of art have gone bonkers, but I find it sad that we silo creativity up. So we go, oh, all that art, and you go into the gallery what proportion of society goes into the gallery? To me, it's so much more interesting when our expressive, imaginative selves are there around us all and not labelling themselves as whether they are or aren't art or creativity. And when I first started my studio and no one would trust us to design buildings, you'll trust us to design buildings, but we'll come back to that, we would get asked to do artworks. And... Frankly, they were the compensation for architecture that was devoid of engagingness. So you were coming in as a kind of compensator in in this thing called art. And you know that expression, the turd in the plaza. And we, we realized we had to get further up the food chain to be actually thinking about the whole environment. And it to me, it's not generous. You know, if the artwork is in the lobby or in the art gallery, and why are we putting all that imaginativeness there? Nothing wrong with that, but why don't we actually do it where, selfishly, the most people will see your work if it's in the streets. Like a thousand times more people will see it. But do you value them less than the person who's more likely to, the more privileged person who's going to go and might have studied art history and value it then inside? So... I believe it really matters. And now after COVID, after the digital revolution, our physical world is more important than ever. The opportunity is massive. And the opportunity is just for more diversity. I'm not arguing, like the modernists were arguing that strip ornament, less is more, that all of these things, I'm not arguing for that. Have some absolutely minimalistic buildings, but don't just have them. Have some ludicrous buildings gaudi i mean is on the edge of kitsch and craziness have it great but just not have one thing express more of ourselves and originally the world of buildings wasn't the idea of the lone genius 
the master builder was never even going to see the cathedral he was building finished. And all the, this ecosystem of creative makers were all making individually creative decisions that were coming together. And on a personal level, I used to think there was something wrong with me when I went to the Royal College of Art in London. There were all the students, because it was quite hard to get in, all sitting there trying to be brilliant by themselves at their desk. Going, I'm, I must be great because I'm at the Royal College of Art. And you were sitting there. And then, for example, it was an engineer who had come in. And when he came in, suddenly like, it was like the, the lights came on, the flowers bloomed. You'd be talking to him and, and you realised, were you engineering it? Was he engineering it? Were you designing it? Was he? And between you, design happened. And so my studio has grown and there's 240 of us. And it's just a big collaboration of all of us. And there's something wrong if I'm the one coming up with the ideas on projects. That's when something's wrong. And it's actually us all together. And I think we need artists, theatre designers, sculptors, craftspeople, ceramicists being brought in. And the less the idea of the single person who draws a gigantic thingy tower, but actually many of us, because it's really hard to another thingy tower, but it takes many, many people. Like Buildings are really complex. They're massive. It's a huge responsibility, cost a fortune. But there's such a responsibility to society that you have. And I believe that we are in the, the industry, you are as well, of public service. We are serving the public. We need to be serving them. And that's become unfashionable. There's a lot of scorn in the building design industry that just says, oh, that's a vanity project. Or it praises clean lines. And it says this building is honest. This building is rigorous and this building is subtle. I've never heard any child walk along and go, that's so subtle. I love it. Look at the clean lines. The places that we love often are dirty lines. There's an atmosphere that's very uptight, very superior, very uncollaborative in reality. And we, but that's what an amazing opportunity, incredible opportunity if we could bust all that creativity that's sort of stuck in the wrong places and get it permeating to the bit we all share, that would be incredible. Really incredible. Well, there you go. You can imagine what Mr. Heatherwick is like when he reads reviews of architecture in The Guardian these days. I want to take a couple of questions from the audience. There's a microphone there. And rather than hear questions, if there's anyone that has a question for Thomas, please step up and we'd be happy to do it. Quick question for you. Who do you think is the chief villain of boringness? Is it architects? Is it planners? Is it the fire department? Is it developers? Is it the public? Is it regulators? Who is it? I don't think villain's the right word because I think that actually people care a lot. So I don't think there's a care problem. I think it's a mindset problem. And I think we need to shift the culture it doesn't mean that you have to ask a million people's opinions on everything you do because nothing would get built if you had to ask everyone's opinion and everyone say they were happy and nod and then do something. There are lots of very imaginative people, but we need to spend our time putting our imagination into imagining being in someone else's shoes, experiencing what you do. So I do believe you could have someone in solitary confinement thinking and empathizing with another to make decisions, even if they never spoke to anyone else. Um, but I think we ultimately, the public needs to speak up. And when the public speaks up, it's all going to change. But it won't change without that, because there's an industry that's very happy giving awards to itself. All this just goes round and round and round. Um, and, and then demolishing after 40 years, because the economics are out of out of our brains once it's a generation or two away. And so the public needs, and that's why in, in a way, not using words like beauty, because that sort of disappears down a sort of political rabbit hole, but also the, the neuroscientists and the evidence in 94% of people agree what is boring. And so it's pretty objective. Whereas what is the extra bit of beauty and this whole campaign and humanize really is, not about saying, wouldn't it be lovely if everything was extra gorgeously wonderful? It's saying, what if everything wasn't totally rubbish? It's just trying to lift up the total rubbish. 
And one of the questions that I've been asked was about, um, do you have fruit loaf here? Do you know what a fruit loaf with raisins set in bread? Fruit, fruit cake. cake. Yeah, fruit cake. Someone said, Thomas, are you saying that the whole world, so if we use the fruit cake analogy, that it, everything has to be raisins, that everywhere should be raisins? And that's absolutely what we're not saying. My studio is maybe slightly pigeonholed and we make a lot of raisins. But at the point actually isn't about the raisins. They're the 0.01% of the kinds of commissions that happen. The challenge is, and, and it's a journey we have to go in on as a studio ourselves too, is how do we make the bread bit or the cakey bit in between have some nutritional value and have systems for how to do that? And that's why my dream would be to work on social housing projects and care homes and clinics. And I do believe that we can find ways to focus the limited resources that are there to make more human buildings. And they don't have to be Sydney Opera Houses and Gherkins and what was that one, the Salesforce Towers, to, to be human, I'm, I'm, I really believe. Well, on that note, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Thomas Heatherwick. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.